0: Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. We've come to the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus has been in the Galilee, He has been preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven that has come in with him, with the incarnation. He has been healing people and he has been preaching in parables about the life people are supposed to be leading. He's done all of these things. He has never directly said that he is the prophesied Messiah, but he has been preaching about the good news of God. He has been healing through the might and the power of God. And he's taken now his disciples aside They've left the Galilee, they've gone into Gentile territory because there have been some times where the people have actually wanted to uh, rent Jesus away from the crowds and to uh, make him king, the kind of king that they wanted, which was somebody who would overthrow the powers of Rome under whose boot they were still um, captive. And so he's taken them apart to the Gentile area of Caesarea Philippi because he has a really important question to ask them. In fact, a pivotal question for what then continues in our gospel story, in Matthew's gospel story. And before asking it directly to the disciples, He asks them another question, which is, what does everybody else, what's the gossip mill saying? What are the rumors? What are people saying about, and he doesn't say me, he doesn't speak in first person, he speaks in the third person What are people saying about the Son of Man? Because that's the term that he has used for himself. It harkens back to Daniel's prophecies, the Son of Man. You shall see the Son of Man descending in the clouds. He uses that term to take away the heat of the term Messiah or Son of God. So he uses the term for himself, son of man. And that has many different layers of meaning, too many to go into this morning. But he asks the disciples, what are people saying? What's the word out there? Who do they think the son of man is? And then uh, throughout the crowd, throughout all of the disciples, one says, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist was actually his cousin and living at the same time, but John the Baptist at this point in time had been murdered by Herod. Um, Another says, you're Elijah. And yet another says that you're Jeremiah. And then, you know, others are just saying one of the prophets that you're a prophet. You'll notice that all of these people are prophets. John the Baptist was thought of as a prophet to follow in the lines of the Old Testament prophets, the prophets of old. There hadn't been no prophet in Israel for hundreds of years until John the Baptist came on the scene. Well, if they're thinking that Jesus is a prophet, um, that belies sometimes what we say about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, because the prophets were never meek and mild, because they had a very difficult message to give, and they were solitary, because nobody wanted to be around them, and nobody wanted to be known to, uh, to agree with them, because they were always tell- calling the people, challenging the people to live different lives, to return to God, come back and return to God. God spoke through the prophets. Always a challenge. Uh, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. He was always crying for the people. And so it's a prophet that the people think that Jesus is. Now, the ancient prophecies regarding Messiah was that he would be a prophet in the way that Moses was a prophet. But they've not actually made that leap, the people, um, just, they've just gone so far as to think he is a prophet like the prophets of old. And so then he comes to his pivotal question. It's really important for him to know if the disciples have been able to discern his identity through his preaching and his teaching and his healing ministry and his times talking to them and unfolding the layers of the meaning in the parables, have they got it? Have they even halfway got it? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, once again, uh, takes the leadership role and says for the first time, you are Messiah. You are Son of the Living God. G- uh, Peter has said what none of the people in the crowds have said, he has put it all together. He's not put it all together the same way that he will do after the resurrection because he's still thinking Messiah in the prophetic way that people were thinking of Messiah in first century Palestine. He was going to come in might like the king of old, like King David, with a sword, with an army, and he was going to bring in justice for Israel and boot out the Roman conquerors. But he does recognize Jesus as Messiah. And what's so important is because immediately after he's made this confession, immediately after Peter has made this confession, Jesus, for the first of four times, will tell his disciples that his messiahship is one of sacrifice, it's not coming in as a king with a sword. It's laying down a life so that others may live. For immediately after this confession by Peter, he says, We're going to Jerusalem where I will die. And immediately after Peter's confession, You are Messiah, which means anointed one and all the levels of what that means son of the living god now he doesn't understand that term the way he will understand it after the resurrection and the way we automatically think of it ourselves as the second person of the trinity the son of god the father the son and the holy spirit he's not thinking that at this point in time the different but he is saying that he's son of the living god and that means he has a special relationship to the father because he's heard the father peter has heard the father say this is my beloved son listen to him he's heard that at the transfiguration he's heard that in the uh, the baptism of jesus in the jordan this is my son the beloved He is the son of the living God. He is the anointed one. In the line of kings, back in that day, only those who were kings were anointed. It was pour, Oil was poured on them as a symbol of their kingship, of their anointing. So Messiah means anointed one. So yes, king, prophet, yes, prophet, son of the living God, absolutely. And he's put all of those things together. And Jesus... Uh, in return, says this about Peter. You are blessed because you didn't get this by yourself. Neither do we. Uh, We don't get it by ourselves. It's from a revelation from God the Father. Jesus says you are blessed because your human reason didn't get you to this proclamation, to this confession. But the wisdom that comes from my father enabled you to make this confession about my true identity. That yes indeed I am Messiah, son of the living God and it was my father in heaven that has blessed you with this knowledge and this discernment. And then secondly because of this confession, because you have been empowered to speak this truth. Peter is given a unique function in amongst all of the other disciples. For Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Notice that it's Jesus who's doing the building. We don't get here this amazing play on words that Jesus is doing with Peter's name. Remember, it's Simon Son of Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John, son of Jonah. At the very beginning, when he calls him, when he becomes, when Peter becomes his disciple, he, he says, um, Simon, you will be called Peter. Well, in the English, Peter and Rock have no correlation whatsoever, all right? But in Aramaic, in the language that Jesus was speaking, Kepha is Peter and rock and so Jesus is using this play on words you are Kepha who is Peter and you are Kepha who is also rock so Peter and rock are one and the same and Matthew when he's writing his gospel in Greek tries to continue that play on words by using two similar words in Greek Petros which is the name Peter, and Petra, which means rock. And so Matthew in the original Greek is saying, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will found my church. Peter with all his failings is going to be the foundation for the building of Jesus' church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against the spread of the kingdom that will come forth from Peter. Um, The gates of Hades or the gates of death? Now gates don't move outward, so it's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that is pounding against those gates. And the gates of death are not going to be able to stand firm in the face of the preaching of the gospel and of the movement of the kingdom of heaven. Even the gates of death will fall against this kingdom. The kingdom will prevail and would go forth. Death will be overcome by this kingdom going forward. On this rock, says Jesus, I will build my church and even the gates of death, because shortly, as I said, Jesus will proclaim that he will go to his death, but that death will not be the end. In fact, it will be the beginning of the kingdom of heaven really going out in power. Peter's given the authority to admit people into the kingdom He's been given the keys of the kingdom. Now we only need a key to unlock a door that's been locked once. After it's unlocked, it's open. And the key to opening up that gate, to opening up the kingdom of heaven for all, is the pre- preaching of the confession that, that Peter has just made, that Jesus is Messiah, son of the living God. And indeed, we see that Peter unlocks the key after the res- resurrection. He preaches, remember on Pentecost, 3,000 people come to Christ to converted, And then he goes for- Philip's gone out to Samaria, Um, he's preached and Peter goes and lays hands on the people who have been converted and they receive the Holy Spirit. He goes into Tyre and Sidon, he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, to his whole household. So the gospel, Peter's unlocked the door for the kingdom of heaven to come in. And afterwards, all those in Peter's line who confess that Jesus is Messiah, son of the living God, help bring in that kingdom to all peoples. And to Peter is given the authority to declare the terms in which God grants entrance into his kingdom. For those who accept the gospel... For those who receive the gospel message and are therefore loosed from their sins, to them is given entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But those who reject the gospel, who walk away from the good news, who cannot proclaim Christ as Messiah, son of the living God, to them they are still bound in their sins and they cannot enter into God's kingdom. See, this confession of Peter encapsulates the gospel message. And when we see, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, Son of the living God, and we move on to the next thing. You know, we could take a lifetime to wrestle with what that means. What does that mean to each and every one of us To make that confession because we are all, if we are Christians, to make that confession. You are Messiah. You are the Anointed One. You are Son of the Living God. You are God incarnate. And if that is true and we are making that confession, then He is Lord and there is no other. We're not in control we're not in control of our lives if he is messiah he is the one lord of our lives we're not there is no other we are to make that confession knowing that if jesus is lord all of who we are comes under his lordship every single area Of our lives he's the anointed one he's the king he's the prophet he's the son of the living God who builds his church in us and through us out into the world and we need to find out what that truly means to say that to make the proclamation you are Messiah Son of the living God. It means that we need to reason about it. If we just take it on the surface, we're just living a surface Christianity. We're not really delving into what that means for us and through us into the world. It means much deeper. Peter knew on the other side of the resurrection the depths of what he said on the surface when he made this proclamation and this confession. We too are to deepen our understanding of what that means And that's exactly what Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, your understanding of who Jesus is, is not to be done through the lens of secular culture. It's to be done through the lens of scripture. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. As Christians, we don't put our minds over here and take them back up again in the scientific world. Our minds are engaged as Christians. It says, by the renewing of your minds. But those are minds renewed and led into truth by the working of God's Holy Spirit. It's through here it's through these pages. We just had a class on Holy Scripture and we had some vignettes and videos by N.T. Wright. And uh, one person asks him, you know, when you're a 100 and you're on your deathbed, what would you say to your children that you want them to know? And he said, you know, I've, I've just, my father's just died and I've not thought about what it would be when I finally die. He said but I want them to know the person who leaps off of these pages in the Gospels. I want them to truly know this Jesus. I don't want them to be reading the Bible, in other words, as a rule book. Okay, this is going to happen. Where am I going to find the answer to how I'm supposed to live now? If you know the person of Jesus, if Jesus comes alive from the gospel stories, then we will be transformed into his likeness from one degree to another, as Paul says elsewhere. Because it's not just a question of checking off a yes and a no answer. It's knowing the person and having our lives aligned with his life so that we know in any situation how we're to respond it's not i need to go back and find okay this happened to me yesterday this is happening to me right now how no, the mind of Christ becomes our mind. We're transformed into his likeness, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds and that takes work. It takes going into this book. It takes reading through and allowing him to come fully living into our living rooms, into our bedrooms, wherever we're reading his word and he's standing there and we see him alive and we hear what he has to say and how he's living how he lived his life in the incarnation and our lives start to align with his life and ultimately his life is a life of giving his life for the life of the world it's about sacrifice Paul says this, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. See, the more we're conformed into the image of Christ, the more of who Christ is lives itself out in us. The more we understand his messiahship, the more we understand his lordship over all of our lives, the more we are called to sacrifice our old ways in the world to give ourselves completely over to him. We lay all of ourselves down, all of who we are, all of our resources, all of our talents, all of our sins, all of our failings, all of our fears. The totality of who we are is a living sacrifice, not so that we become less, but so that we become more. We become more fully human because we've given over our old life and received the new life of Christ. At the altar, shortly, we'll receive ordinary bread and wine. When it's laid on the altar as a sacrifice to God, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes it for us the very body and blood of Christ. It's the same with us. We lay ourselves on the altar, ordinary human beings, and the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us a new life, a life conformed to Christ. And then, truly, with Peter, we can make the confession and know a little bit more of what it means to say, you are are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Amen.